Well, good morning. I love the, that uh, part there where growing old gracefully and with wow. I'm not sure exactly what the wow is, but uh, we, we all certainly want to grow old gracefully and with wow, uh, with what, whatever that might be. We're going to be starting in uh, Matthew chapter 13, the part end of uh, Matthew chapter 13. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, humanly impossible types of situations. We're eventually going to get down to humanly impossible situations. And specifically, how do we deal with humanly impossible types of situations? We've just come off this section in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 52, if you remember from last week, where Jesus begins to teach his disciples through parables. And last week, we were primarily looking at the parable of the sower and the soils, and with that parable, uh, use it or lose it, that the condition of your heart really determines the potential for growth. really doesn't have anything to do with believer or non-believer. It has everything to do with your condition of your heart, and he talked about the four conditions of the heart, and the condition of the heart really determines the potential for growth. Lose it, use it, or lose it. Matthew leaves the reader with the impression that he really said all of those parables in one, uh, uh, one time, which is probably true because they all tended to relate very nicely together. Jesus now begins to prepare his disciples after that teaching section for what lays ahead. And we go back into a narrative section, a narrative section after the teaching section. If you remember, now we come into a narrative section. And in this particular narrative section, Matthew is recording mounting opposition, mounting opposition. He expanded his ministry, but the opposition to his ministry becomes more and more intense. And because of that, he begins to prepare his disciples for that mounting opposition that he is experiencing, which really then has a lot of application to us. We see the opposition. We see Jesus then withdrawing and beginning to prepare his disciples in training. And then we see public ministry, and that's kind of like round one. Then we see more opposition, Jesus withdrawing, preparing his disciples, and then public ministry. And you'll no see in your notes that the section is really broken down into four distinct units. We're going to be primarily looking at the first section or the first uh, uh, part. There's the opposition of the Nazarenes and Herod. Then Jesus withdraws, and he begins to prepare his disciples. And the opposition then we see by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then Jesus withdraws and begins to prepare his disciples. And then you see the opposition once again by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that mounting opposition appears almost overwhelming because it's coming to him in waves, wave upon wave. And it's interesting that one of the, the uh, miracles that we're going to look at really has uh, the disciples, remember, out on the on the lake, and they were being battered by the waves. And you kind of go, yeah, 
That's kind of like what's happening with Jesus. He's kind of getting battered by the waves, battered by the opposition that's coming upon him. But he begins to prepare his disciples for those overwhelming circumstances of being continually battered in those things that are going on. So in verses uh, 13, 54 through 14, 12, we really see the opposition of the Nazarenes and Herod. And the opposition really becomes intense. So look at chapter 13, verse 54. Uh, 54 through 58, where Jesus now is opposed by his own people in Nazareth. 53, when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. Kind of the transition statement that says, okay, we're, we're switching from teaching section into a narrative section. He came to his hometown and began teaching in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all of these things? Verse 57, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus' hometown, obviously he was in Nazareth, referring to the section that he's in. Reference, uh, obviously, Joseph is the carpenter. Interesting, a definite article, meaning it could be that Joseph was the carpenter, the only carpenter in there in the town, which would make maybe sense in, in Nazareth. Nazareth was a, kind of in a bowl uh, there in the northern part of Galilee. Not that many people that were there. Carpenter during that time was not so much working with wood as much as they were working with stone and wood, and probably more of a, kind of the general contractor, so to speak, in that, in that part. And uh, Jesus was more of a construction worker, and it mentions his uh, brothers and his sisters there. Um, don't confuse James and Simon and Judas with the disciples of the same name. These are different individuals. There's no indica indication that these individuals came to know Christ until after, or believe in him until after his resurrection. Uh, but the point is, is that even those who knew Jesus best refused to believe in him. And verse 57, and they took offense at him. He was opposed by his own. But now the opposition grows even more. Now it goes into the political realm because he is opposed by Herod. Look at verses 1 through 12 in chapter 14. And this is all kind of going to some place, so hang in there. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why his miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. 
For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Verse 6, but when Herod's birthday came, either that, either his birthday or his anniversary birthday of when he ascended to the throne, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He didn't want to be embarrassed. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Verse 12. His disciples came, John's disciples, and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported it to Jesus. In other words, there was enough of a respect of John's disciples for Jesus that then they took the, 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 the body, buried it, but then reported everything that had happened to, to uh, Jesus. We're going to come back to that, but don't get confused here with all of the Herod the Tetrarch and all of this other stuff. The main point is that the opposition was beginning to rise from the political arena, Herod now having John the Baptist killed, uh, executed, really heightens the wow factor, so to speak, of, gosh, these guys are really probably coming after me as well. Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch is Herod Antipas. I don't want to confuse you with all of this. It's really kind of an interesting study that Herod's are quite the family, uh, if you really want to get into it. Herod Antipas was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, uh, when he died, he divided the kingdom into different sections by, by their sons. Now, Herod Antipas ruled over the Galilee and Perea section during the time of Jesus, uh, basically most of Jesus' life. Uh, there were more both moral and religious reasons why John the Baptist opposed this. Uh, Herod the Great had at least, that we know of, four different wives. And so all of these individuals were kind of related to one another one way or the other. They were either uh, direct uh, nephews and nieces or things of that nature, or they were related somehow. One of his children of Herod the Great was Herod Antipas. Antipas had two brothers named Philip uh, from two different moms, so they were kind of half-brothers. Uh, they were Herod Antipas' mom was Malhais. These were descendants of Miriamne. Uh, Herod's marriage basically to Philip's wife Herodias was both incestuous and adulterous. So that's one of the reasons that John the Baptist kept opposing what was, what was happening. Evidently, John repeatedly came to him. In verse 4, the verb there kind of has a repeated action. He repeatedly came to Herod, Herod Antipas to kind of confront him about his incestuous and adulterous relationship with his wife. Well, I'm sure that 
Antipas probably got a little bit perturbed with this guy, continually confronting him about how immoral he really was. And so that added a little bit of the political uh, pressure upon those guys. On the day of the celebration in verses 6 through 8, uh, Herodias' daughter, by her previous marriage to Philip I, her name was either Salome or Salome, depending upon who you read or how you want to pronounce it. Uh, she was probably between 12 and 14 years old at that time. And the popular idea that her dance was somewhat sensuous is not really from the text or anything else other than the reputation of the Herodians. Uh, that was kind of the uh, extra biblical type of material. And just the, the whole nature of the social status of the dancing girls that they, that they would have. Uh, verses 9 through 11, uh, Antipas was really wrong to, to give, the, give the directions to um, have John the Baptist killed, but uh, he didn't want to be embarrassed, and so he uh, takes the step and has John the Baptist beheaded. Now, that was really pretty gruesome when you think about it. That wasn't the normal way that you would, would uh, uh, execute a, a, a Jew, especially. Uh, but he had him beheaded. Now, here's, the, here's where it comes into a little bit of a play. John the Baptist's disciples go and tell Jesus. What do you think at this point Jesus was probably thinking when he heard that when he heard that uh, news. Text doesn't tell us, so, but I think it gives us a little bit of an insight as to where he goes from here. What do you think John, Jesus was thinking at this point when he hears John the Baptist? Obviously, he was grieved, you know, he was obviously grieved, but what else, what else do you think he was, he might, might have been thinking at that particular time? Speak to me, yeah. Yeah. This is someone he was. Oh, this was someone he was close to as family, not only spiritually, but I'm sure he was sad, like when he cried over Jerusalem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the grief was even more intense because of the closeness of John the Baptist. Yeah. Go ahead. What's that? He may have been thinking, "I'm next." Yeah. Could have definitely been thinking, you know, "I'm next." All right. What else? Yeah, go ahead. I think he already knew this. Well, of course, yeah. Being Jesus, yeah. He had some insight as to what was happening so that he knew which, which direction it was going. Well, he knew that his disciples were before they, before they were made disciples that day. What I'm saying, we know Jesus knew more than they did. I think sure. he was more concerned with how his disciples were going to react. Okay, excellent, excellent. Yeah, absolutely, excellent. Yes, yes, the pretty one back here. <laughs> before, before the choir leaves, the scripture memory verses. The scripture memory verses for this week is Matthew fourteen twenty seven. It's 
It's a short one. Yeah, excellent. You know, his disciples now seeing what was going on, he's got a concern not only for knowing what was coming up, but also knowing what his disciples would be facing as well. All right? What else? You know, I think, I think you pretty well hit it. You know, the, the strong reaction from not only the common people, the disciples saw what was happening there in Nazareth, but now also from the nation's political leaders, i.e. Herod, Herod Antipas, really Jesus now recognizing, hey, there's mounting opposition here. I know what's going to happen, but let's, let, let's train the disciples. Let's prepare the disciples or prepare my disciples for that mounting opposition that's happening. Because we are coming into almost like an impossible type of situation. Um, and in view of that coming conflict, Jesus now withdraws, withdraws from this situation. He sees the opposition from the people. He sees the opposition from the political leader. Jesus now withdraws to begin to prepare his disciples for this mounting opposition that's coming along. And this one is, this one's elevated a little bit because now, hey, these guys have no problem lopping off John the Baptist's head. Doug, no problem, yeah. Was, was that also a uh, fulfillment of prophecy uh, with John, John the Baptist's head being lopped off? Where? I'm just asking, was there a, had there been a prophecy that would have that would have registered in Jesus's mind. Um, I I'm not thinking of the prophecy that you might be referring to it okay. just right off the top. I'm not of the referring book. to anything in particular. Oh, okay. I was just thinking there might have been. Yeah, I'm I'm not not putting that one together. Jesus then withdraws in verses uh, 13 through 21, and so now we come into the feeding of the 5,000, and this is where this is where I think we want to with a little bit of background here, this is where we want to focus. Because the first thing that happens now is the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 13 through 21. So let me read it, and then we're going to have a little bit of a discussion here. Now, when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. When the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities when he went ashore, ashore, he saw a large crowd. He felt compassion for them and healed their sick. Jesus always feeling compassion, showing mercy by healing the sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this place is desolate. The hour is already late. So send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fish. He said to them, bring them here to me. 
ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up towards heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. There were about 5,000 men who ate, besides the women and children. All right, kind of an interesting uh, scenario here. There's a lot of parallels that are going on that, that really uh, are, are fun. We, we have the, the simple meal of, of uh, fish and, and bread compared to uh, Herod's lavish meal that was in the, the palace. So you have the contrast of Herod now going to Jesus, but what's going on here? I mean, I always look at these sections and I, 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 my first question is, what is this doing here? What, what did the author, i.e. the Holy Spirit, through Matthew, why, why is this here? And by the way, this is the only miracle that's found in all four Gospels. So out of, all of the, out of all of the miracles that were happening, this one is the only one that's found in all four Gospels. Obviously, there's some, some uh, importance that's happened here for the Holy Spirit to include it in all four Gospels. Why is this so important? What's the point? What's going on, especially in light of what was happening with Herod Antipas? Uh, why... Why now do we go from this lopping off of John the Baptist's head to the feeding of the 5,000? What are we supposed to take away from this? Yes, sir, Tim. I think maybe Jesus' greatest lesson to his disciples was that we minister from our emptiness, that Jesus was grieving, they didn't have enough food, but God provided, and I think that is a big lesson to me when we're grieving, when we're uh, depressed. Instead of being filled with self-pity, we have to minister to others. Okay. All right. There's the aspect of service that's going on. You bet. What else is happening here? Yeah, go ahead. The Holy Spirit, our Savior. Amen. Okay. The power for our service is through the Holy Spirit. Howard? He may have been setting them up for other discussions. He said that um, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. He might have done a parallel to that somewhere down the line. I think so. Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're kind of coming back to my ma main introduction at the beginning. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, ma'am. I think maybe he was encouraging them also that someday after Jesus was gone, that they will be the ones that feed, that, that perform the miracles. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. This is, yeah, go ahead. All right, yeah, good, good, absolutely. Trust, 
Yeah? Another word for, for that? Yeah, go ahead, right behind you. It's interesting that there were 12 disciples and there were 12 baskets. Sure, absolutely, yeah. Each, each uh, disciple probably had a basket, which is why we had the 12, 12 baskets full, and so those 12 things, and they, they were all full at the very end. Yeah, all right. What I kind of liked is that he takes their mind off. Uh, being fishermen, we're physical people. You know, it, John the Baptist, you know, they had a sword and they chopped his head off. But Jesus sat down there and took, you know, these little pieces and he miraculously made more bread, more fish to feed 5,000. And I think he's trying to get their minds off of being sort of physical, being an engineer. You know, it's kind of there's the laws of physics, there's the laws of this. And then you have Jesus kind of praying to God and boom, you have more stuff coming, whatever. In other words, they were upset about this physical event of John, but he's going to show them, you know, sort of the, you have to get your mind off of the world that we live in and what he's showing them now, that okay. it's, there's a whole lot more. And as they were sh kind of showed, they can't comprehend what he's still trying to teach yet. Yeah. And so that's... Yeah, absolutely. And the physical world was was there, but now we're kind of into the spiritual world. Yeah, um, I think Jesus is seeing that his disciples need some reinforcement that he is the he has he's the um, son of God, that he had the power to miraculously, as he's saying, turn the food over into uh, multiple amounts of food that can only come from um, a deity. And they needed. They may have been waffling themselves, saying, "What are we doing, following this man that's politically getting attacked, and and his um, his reputation was on the line?" And I okay. think they needed some reinforcement on that. All right, reinforcement uh, for the disciples. Yeah, right behind you. I'm just adding to all of that. I think he's teaching the disciples and us all that whatever Jesus says. Whether you understand it or not, do it. Sure. <laughs> there, you, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what, what was, there were a lot of situations in Scripture where you see a lot of what I would call humanly impossible types of situations. And, you know, we go back and, you know, the, it, Scripture is a, full of those examples, Moses uh, and the manna in the wilderness, uh, Gideon and the 135,000 Midianites, Hezekiah and Sennacherib and the, uh, you know, the 185,000 Assyrians, Jehoshaphat and the Meunites, you know, uh, uh, David and Goliath, Sarah and Abraham facing barrenness. I mean, humanly impossible situations. And in those humanly impossible situations, the the message continues to go through all the way through scripture is trust me. Trust me. Faith, believe, have faith, believe, trust, dependence upon me. You can depend upon me in whatever impossible situation that you are going to face. Here, Jesus just gets word back from John that John had been beheaded. 
He realizes that not only his own people, the opposition is continuing to mount, not only is his own people coming against him, but now we've got the political forces that have now ramped it up even a step. They've lopped off John the Baptist's head. Things are beginning to, to really kind of boil over. Jesus says, you know, hey, I'm grieving here, but I need to, I need to reassure and prepare my disciples, train them for what, what's coming up down the road. Next thing that happens, we got the five, feeding of the 5,000. What's going on? This is an impossible situation. We got 5,000 men. That's not count, counting the, the women and the children, so who knows? 10,000, maybe 15,000 people that are there. We find out from the other, other places in Scripture that, okay, there's, there's uh, five loaves of bread, two fish, and you sit there and you go, impossible situation. In the other state, well, you know, we don't have enough money to be able to, to purchase anything. And yeah, it's, it's beyond, beyond your capability. Beyond your capability to be able to deal with it. I.e., the opposition is going to be beyond your capability to be able to deal with as well. What do I want you to do with it? Trust me. Be dependent upon me. And if you depend upon me, there will be adequate resources to be able to deal with whatever impossible situation that you're dealing with. God will provide if you trust in me. And so he, in a typical Jewish father fashion, he blesses the food. And then he begins to, to hand this stuff out. Now, you wonder exactly how that happened, you know? You kind of go, how did that happen? But when you've got 5,000 people there and you've got baskets, you know, I, I don't know what kind of baskets, how big the baskets were, but they can't be too big of baskets. I mean, you know, you think of a bushel basket, 5,000. You know, they had to, it doesn't say, but in my brain, sanctified imagination as it is, in my sanctified imagination, they had to keep going back to Jesus. You know, they'd, they'd empty their basket out over here, and then they'd have to go back to Jesus and get more, and then they'd empty out their basket over here, and then they'd have to go back to Jesus and get more. Continual dependence, reliance upon Jesus to be able to meet the impossible situation of the day. You sit there and you say, well, what are some of those impossible situations that we face? Well, we face impossible situations all the time. Where humanly, it looks impossible that we're going to be able to make it through. Ministry, you know, you think of ministry impossible situations. I can think of a dozen of, is the gospel ever really going to be able to penetrate this individual's heart, you know? You got a hard heart here. Humanly impossible. Depend upon Jesus. A relationship that's gone bad. How's that humanly impossible? We're going to be able to depend upon me. These guys were facing 
a bigger opposition than the ones that we can, can, can come up with. But the message is the same. Trust in me. Depend upon me. Whatever the impossible situation that you might face, I have adequate resources. And in fact, that's, what, that's what's going to happen here in the next one, the next impossible situation that comes up. Because what, what happens is he, he, he has, uh, right after that, he walks on the water. Look at verse 22. I'm going to flip over here. Verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray, and when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered for the, by the waves, for the wind was contrary. I love that. Yeah, the disciples were getting battered already. And they, you know, now they're, now they're, out, they're, now they're out in the boat, and they're battered again. Battered by the waves. Yeah. Sometimes I feel battered. You ever feel battered? Battered for the waves. And in the fourth, 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to him walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Now, they probably didn't recognize him. Maybe because it was dark. It was probably between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. It's interesting that, just in, once again, my sanctified imagination, most of the night Jesus was praying, most of the night they were rowing. We spend a lot of time rowing, don't we? When we ought to be praying. Jesus was praying, they were rowing, not in the middle of the night, now Jesus comes, walking, they probably, a little bit of fog maybe, they don't recognize him, they were terrified. But then he says, he spoke to them, verse 27, which is our memory verse for Patty, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Notice that there's a little bit of a chiastic structure even in that sentence. Take courage, do not be afraid, and in the middle, it is I. Meaning, it is I, the translation of I am, I am, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. And he goes, yeah, yeah, that's the whole point. Whatever those impossible situations are, whatever it is, take courage, Jesus is, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Jesus is more than adequate to be able to meet your needs, no matter what those needs might be. Never gauge the size of the challenge in terms of your own human capability. And typically, we look at these challenges and we begin to measure how we're going to be able to take those on based upon our own capability. And you realize we don't have the capability to be able to take that on. 
We don't have the ability to be able to pull it off. We like to think that we do, and we like to puff ourselves up to be able to think that we do, but in reality, we aren't going to be able to pull it off. Jesus says, take courage. I am. Do not be afraid. You know, uh, fear is ultimately unwarranted wherever Jesus is present. If you have Jesus present with you, that fear diminishes. The answer to the fear is faith, and if faith is best placed in the one that's identified as I am. Trusting in him. This really ends really the first round of the opposition. Uh, chapter 15 goes into another round of opposition, withdrawal, disciple training, public ministry. You see round two of this where you just saw round one. Round two picks it up. So the question really that we have here just in a couple of minutes left is so what's the main point? Well, here's the main point. How do you deal with those humanly impossible situations? Whatever the circumstances, as impossible as it may appear to you, Jesus is more than adequate to be able to meet your needs. Fear is unwarranted. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Continual dependence upon him and him alone is absolutely essential no matter what situation that you're facing. Trusting God to provide the necessary resources to be able to accomplish his purpose. I'd ask you as you look this week, you know, what, what appears to be impossible for you? could be a relationship, could be some sort of circumstances that has come into your life. I don't know how I'm going to make it through another, another day. I don't know how I'm going to make it through another week. I don't know how I'm going to make it through this. Jesus would say, come to me. Do not be afraid. Take courage. I am. I am. Rely Trust, depend upon me. And as those disciples kept going back to Jesus to, to fill the baskets, we need to keep going back, keep going back to fill those baskets so that we're going to be able to minister and serve in him and to be able to face that opposition that's coming up against us. The disciples were facing it, we face it. The answer is the same. Dependence and trust upon Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you just for the relevance of your word. And thank you for the symmetry that we're able to see these rounds and the reasoning behind what's going on and how it all fits together so beautifully. It's beyond
human composition to be able to be able to put this all together. We recognize that only the Holy Spirit through, through Matthew is able to compose such, such a wonderful message and such a wonderful book. Father, we pray that we would be students, not only of your word, but also students in life. That we wouldn't just use this as head knowledge, but that we would put it into life and put it into our practical, everyday application of how we face life in total dependence upon you, moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, depending upon you to face those, what appear to us, overwhelming, impossible circumstances that come into our lives. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are the great I am. Thank you that we are able to have a personal relationship with you. We pray, Lord, that we would continue to rely upon that strength that's available, so freely available in you. that we would rest in your sovereignty, rest in your grace, rest in your love that you have for us. Thank you for each one here. Richly bless them this week. For we pray these things in Christ's name. And all God's people said, amen. amen.